1: Welcome, 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 my friend, to the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Brad Wilson. And in today's show, I am once again joined by cash game crusher, YouTuber, and podcaster, Trevor Savage. I got so consumed by Trevor's story in our first conversation that I forgot to ask him any questions other than, Tell me about your poker journey. So today, we're going to more than make up for that, and then some, as he's about to throw down greatness bomb after greatness bomb. As a short aside, I'm a little worried about the continuity of this episode, because right in the middle of recording, I had a gremlin in my internet connection, and it just kept dropping over and over again. For a little mental imagery, it got so bad, I actually ran out of my house so that I could track down the Comcast guy who I just knew was in my neighborhood making our lives miserable. I did find him and, shockingly, he pressed one button and my internet came back like it was no big deal. I highly doubt you're ever going to hear a Comcast ad on this podcast because they make ACR look like customer service gods. With that said, in today's episode, you're going to learn the most unexpected thing to come from Trevor's journey through poker, what Trevor believes is the most high-impact, action you can take to improve your poker game, how Trevor maintains balance as a father and poker professional, and much, much more. And before you dive into this part two conversation, just want to take a second to let you know that this interview is brought to you by Poker With Presence. If you want to get in the zone and play your best when you need it the most, visit pokerwithpresence.com. And now, without any further ado, I bring to you an amazing man, top shelf card player, and unbelievably patient spirit, Trevor Savage. Trevor, welcome back, sir. How you doing? I'm, uh, I'm hanging in there. A little tired.
2: A little tired. So hopefully uh, I, can, I can deal with the uh, lightning round here.
1: But yeah. What's can... the... Why are you tired?
2: This is day eight of being a solo dad, solo parent. My wife's been gone. Jardy's been gone for eight days. Hopefully she'll be home tomorrow, but might not be home till couple of days after that so and uh, my middle daughter had some nightmares last night so we got about two hours of sleep last night so i'm hanging in there but you know hopefully i might my brain will be as sharp as it as i want it to be
1: well we'll see you know i i i hesitate to say that it will be as sharp as you want it to be because two hours of sleep is especially brutal um but i guess you know we can give a shout out to the single moms out there and how they manage to do all the things is almost superhuman.
2: I can't even imagine. Yeah. It's, it's just unbelievable. The amount of work that they have to put in. I mean, moms just in general put in a ton of parents, parents put in a ton of work. I know that at least in my house, the, the word mom gets said way too many times and way more than the word dad gets said. So definitely shout out to all parents out there who, Putting in the work.
1: For sure. It's uh, it's a tough gig. Um, it's one of those things that are worthwhile, obviously. But uh, when you're in it, it, it can be really tough. It can be challenging to yep. persevere. For sure. So, okay. Forgive me if I re-ask any questions that I asked before. I My feeling coming away was that we really only talked about like your poker journey specifically. But um, I do have this list of questions. And so if I re-ask one, you can just tell me to... Move on because we answered it last time. Um, it's all good. Yeah. What's the most unexpected thing that's come from your poker journey? Uh,
2: I guess going into into the journey, you don't think about the relationships that you'll make. So for me, I guess the you know when you when you become a poker player, it's just because you like playing poker. It wasn't for me. It wasn't like I was going to make a lot of friends or I was going to develop all these relationships that would be lifelong friendships. And that's what has happened throughout my my journey. So, you know, starting from the beginning, I was able to make uh, good friends just through the game, through poker forums, and then through the games that I was playing in. And those people have end up becoming my closest friends in the world. And you know, I've, I have a bunch of them that I've met along the way. I have a group of uh, of friends who I would call a lot of them acquaintances, but they we've had a private poker forum for over ten years, almost eleven years now, where it's just about a hundred people and most of them don't even play poker anymore but it's a just a great community that has developed out of there that I would have you know going into playing poker for a living I didn't ever think of that as something that would happen
1: yeah it's same thing has happened in my career you know you meet people that you would have never met otherwise and you create lasting friendships that will go on after you hang it up, you know, hang up your, I don't, what do we hang up when we end our poker career? The- yeah.
2: I, I mean, I guess it depends for different people. You know, some people are just, just want to be done with poker and they hang up their uh, their folding hands or something, <laughs> you know, I don't know what it would be. Uh, but you know, I, I think there's some people that are poker lifers and just
1: always going to play poker. Right. And yeah. so I,
2: that might, I think that might be me.
1: I got it. They hang up the chip racks. That's the... Chip racks? Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Hang up the chip racks. Don't Never see a chip rack again for the rest of their life.
2: (laughs) They're player's cards.
1: (laughs) Oh, God. I don't think I've (laughs) ever had a player's card anywhere that I've ever played. And I don't know, like, why. I think it's just, like, I I don't know. I've just been, like... It's almost like I have a negative connotation. When somebody busts out their player card and, like, hands it to the dealer for, like, 25 cent an hour comps, I automatically think, like, "Mm." (laughs) hmm... you know i, I judge them, um even though it's clear clearly a good decision because like free money is free money right right yeah i don't know
2: i'm, su- I'm surprised you know it feels like something that you'd want if you're playing live poker you know you want to take advantage of those opportunities of you know i guess it depends on the place too because in some places especially if you're traveling to play there you want to be able to get rooms there you know for a certain price like a borgata you know they, they you want to know that they that you're playing there so I remember actually back in the day that the Tropicana, you know, before they had the Bravo system and things like that, they had the card still. So they'd have to have one of the floor people. It was their only job was to walk around every hour and scan each person's card every single hour. I can't imagine it. Can you imagine that, that that's your job? You know, you just have to walk around and scan these
1: cards every hour. Yeah. That's not, does not sound like a fun job to me. And in my defense though, because I put most of my volume in at commerce and before commerce changed systems to whatever it is they have now, like the high roller section was just unlimited free food, no matter what you wanted. And then, you know, you just told the front desk at like the crown plaza, or you told the floor man to go tell the desk that you were like there for 10 days playing poker. So you just automatically got the poker rate and then you also automatically got the fringe benefits of like the free food. So I think, they, the only benefit back then was like a quarter an hour and i was gotcha. just like uh, ugh, yeah
2: that hour. makes sense then.
1: i've actually never played poker in la really <laughs> yeah. wow never, that is that is shocking to me because man I, like la la to me is like the mecca of live poker it just always has been like you you don't you, it's hard to even I remember the first time I saw the sea of tables in like the low limit section at commerce. And it was just like, Oh my God. Like just, I, I don't even know how many tables there are just hundreds and hundreds of tables and just packed to the gills.
2: Yeah. I guess it's just, it, it never worked its way into my journey. It's, it's a place that I always wanted to go, but it, I guess just the way that my poker journey worked out, I just
1: never made it there to, to play there at all. So just there's working. still time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'll we're there we're
1: so time. young. Like we're not, we're not totally dinosaurs yet. Um, even though I think of myself in that way sometimes.
2: Yeah. Maybe I'll get there before I hang up my poker rack. Yeah. My, <laughs> chip, rack, my chip rack. Sorry. Your
1: chip rack. Yeah. Um, what does your process look like for regularly improving your game?
2: A lot of my process is, happens at the table while I'm playing. So I'm, I'm the type of person who learns the most by putting in volume. And so I think that's a big thing for people getting better at poker it comes down to how you learn, and some people learn better on the fly. For me, it's always been I, I pay attention closely to what my opponents are doing and then learn from them, uh, especially opponents that I think are studying a bit or whatever, uh, you know, I, can, I can basically study through their study
1: uh, by paying attention to what they're doing and, and ad- adapting to what they're doing. That's interesting. Could you get more granular on you study through their study?
2: Yeah, so there'll be. There's always been a couple of uh, opponents that I have in my player pools that I I make sure to pay extra attention to, and especially if I notice that they're doing something different. As soon as I notice that they're, they're doing something different in a spot, or they do something that I thought was was strange from what they would normally do or what I would normally do, I tend to really stick on that and then think about why they're doing what they're doing. So, and and then the same way I think I, we may have talked about this last week that. I also pay attention to people that are considered not good players and, and what they're doing and what I can pick up from them as well. And what if, if I get into a spot against somebody who I think might not be as good, but the spot is tricky for me, then I can kind of think about, Oh, why is this tricky? And what can I do to, to do that against other people in the future?
1: Yeah, that's a greatness bomb right there. Understanding that like a tricky situation merits deeper consideration, like just point blank. If, if you don't know, And if you're honest and you don't know what you ought to do in a spot, that's a spot that is probably ripe for learning. So investigating and figuring out, like, why don't I know what to do? And, you know, how do I go about figuring that out? And, like, yeah, just always paying attention. And, like, the first part of your statement, I know that you were specifically referring to the good players in your game, like the the higher-level players. When they construct a strategy that's like, Makes you think, what the hell was that? Like that's another opportunity that's like, okay, let's figure out what what they had to be thinking. Because, like, if you're clever, if you're smart, you can reverse engineer the whys behind the actions that they must know. Because, like, when they show down their hand, you get that information and then you can sort of like start extrapolating why when you're an advanced player. I think it kind of falls apart if you're at the beginning stages of your poker career because you don't fully understand the why and you can convince yourself. You do know the why, and then uh, you're just going to get yourself into some ridiculous spots um, that are not appropriate for taking, you know, that specific line.
2: Yeah, and I'll say the way that I got better initially, what I did to improve from from the beginning of my career up to you know playing a certain amount of hands was that, especially playing live poker, what I did was every single hand that was dealt in, I played even if I f- folded, I played it out in my head. So. I watched the action of every single hand and when it would get to a certain uh, player, you know, every player, I would say, all right, what would I do with my range here? And then what do I think he's going to do and really go through that process. So that's the way that I kept myself locked into the game because I was literally playing every single hand that happened just in all these different situations. And then obviously that allows you to also take notes on what people are actually doing, because you see how it, it differs from what you would have done you know, cause you're already playing the hand out in, in your head. And then if you have a good, I have a great memory. So I'm able to remember all those hands happening over and over again. So I was the person, you know, in the live game where if, uh, you know, some hand history happened, you know how hand histories live happened where nobody knows the actual details of what happened and everything gets murky. Everybody would just ask me like, okay, ask Trevor what happened because he knows exactly the action of everything that happened in every single hand that's been played at this table for the last two years. So, (laughs) so the memory thing is definitely a big advantage because when you can reference that and, and you have, you know, you can think back and remember exactly how your opponent played a certain situation and bet sizing tells and things like that, that's pretty advantageous. Um, The other thing that I I've always done and it's helped that I've been in small player pools is that I spent a lot of my time studying individual opponents' tendencies so you know when I was playing 6 max no limit I would take one opponent per week and I would just study them all week long and then I would do that for every single opponent and I'd craft my game plan you know off the table a bit but it would also be going on the table you know cuz I'm paying attention I had a, a I have a pretty good ability to be able to play 12 tables at a time but also still feel feel what's going on at all the tables so like I could take it I could see what who's losing big pots who's winning big pots and and what's happening in them and obviously go back and review them post session as well. So that's kind of my routine for, for those things.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, that's sounds like some innate born qualities that are extremely beneficial for a poker player. I know that like for myself, anytime I've tried to play more than six tables, my returns start diminishing my play starts slipping because you know, I'm a high intensity player who's like laser focused into everything. And it, some point my brain cannot process like more than six tables where I'm just like reacting to the action that's coming to me. And I'm not like fully seeing the full picture. So like, yeah, that's awesome that you have that ability to play 12 tables. I'm jealous. Um, and that also, you know, you're, you're blessed with a great memory. I think that's another huge beneficial thing for poker players.
2: It's hard, hard to replicate that type of thing. Obviously it's not just something you can learn. I don't think. Um, I did so now I play mostly PLO and I've always played PLO but I not as my main game. You know, I, I've had long stretches where I would be playing 10 tables of 6 max but then also have one or two t- PLO tables up as well. About a year, a little over a year ago I switched to mostly PLO. And I had always played the game just based on feel. I never studied anything at all. And so when I was getting back into playing it full time, I just tried to play as much like heads up and three-handed as I possibly could and just feel my way, like play, you know, a huge percentage out of, of hands and then figure out what to get, what to do. So I had no idea of preflop fundamentals and things like that, uh, especially within a six max game of, you know, what I should be opening for, for certain things. So that type of thing, that's one thing that I've uh, I have used the vision trainer from run It once for, for that. Uh, so that's like a GTO type trainer. And, but when I use it, I don't just, look at it and then look at the answers and try to memorize that you know I try to do the same thing where I look at it and see what it's spitting out and then think about why it would do that and because that's going to that's the way that I'm going to learn from it I'm not going to just memorize even though I have good memory I'm not going to memorize okay I should half pot see that here I'm going to think about okay why should I half pot with all these hands and what chance should I check and things like that because that's how you're going to that's how you're going to get
1: better. Yeah. If you you understand the whys, then you understand the questions that you want to ask yourself that lead you to better decisions. And like those questions you can replicate, right? Like you can just ask those questions routinely and arrive at better decisions. Like just pure memorization isn't as beneficial. And I I was like you, a tinkerer with PLO, especially back in the day, like fire up five or six tables, have one PLO table going on, like on the side. And no Limit Hold'em skills don't translate ultra well to PLO, I found. It's it's a different game. And I think that when I realized the difference in the game, that was sort of when I felt way more confident with my PLO ability. And like the difference when I got a hold of the Tom Chambers book that is just like, you know, whatever, a thousand pages full of just numbers. The thing that really stood out to me was how little I understood The equities and the incentives for in PLO. And the incentive in PLO compared to Hold'em was more along the lines of like equity denial. So like denying opponents equity is a massive component of playing winning PLO. Whereas in Hold'em, like my tendency was to like do a lot of check calling, inducing bluffs and stuff like that. So when I kind of made that connection of like, oh, this is this is where you kind of start winning at PLO that was when I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to start taking more aggressive actions and spots and denying equity because that's just a much larger component of PLO than it is in Hold'em.
2: My favorite thing about PLO, it, there's a couple of different things that are my favorite parts about PLO. But the one thing is that because I've never learned it from a, not necessarily a book perspective or like a, a training perspective, but it's just been so raw for me that I've always re- relied on feel that I don't, I'm not afraid to make mistakes. And I just... I'll just try things. And I'm like, maybe this will work. I, I don't know. I'm just going to go with what, you know, there's no, with no limit, especially, you know, when you're playing online, six max, two blind game, there's a lot of, there's not as much creativity that you can kind of mix in obviously you can mix creativity in in, in the blinds and you know, button versus small blind hands and things like that. But a lot of times you just have to kind of play tight in a lot of situations, especially in, in games where it's say five, good players and one, one weaker player, right? you you just can't get too out of line because you're going to get punished by good players. Whereas PLO, because for a couple of reasons, because there's just kind of more gambling involved in it, because there's tends to be more weak players involved in it. You, you get, find yourself in these spots where I'm just like, hmm, I don't know, let's try this and see what happens. <laughs> uh-huh. And, you know, it's obviously when you, you play with in a weaker player pool, it makes it, you're, you don't get as punished as easily and also because it's a game where the equities run closer, you don't get as puni- as punished either, uh, punished as much either. So that's one of my, my favorite things about it. Just the, the kind of creativity and and that, that, that goes along with it. The other is that if you have a really good idea of how people think and how people size their bets, it's this bet sizing tells in PLO are way, way more common just because of the pot button, because you can bet pot or you not bet pot, or you can bet half pot and people use those buttons far more often than they do in no limit. So you can, if you play with people enough, you can really develop perfect, essentially perfect reads on them or what I consider to be perfect reads. And that's always been one of my strengths is playing in, you know, smaller pool games where you just have picture perfect reads on everybody's tendencies. And then especially if you get to play shorthanded with them, that gives you far more opportunities to exploit them. And that's my, uh, that's what what I find enjoyable.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're, you're in a greatness bomb dropping mood today. What you mentioned earlier about studying at one specific opponent over the course of a week. I mean, you know, of course that's impactful because these guys you're, you're battling against on a regular basis and like understanding their betting patterns how they approach specific lines and their strategy holistically, you get an insight into what they're doing and then you can exploit them. Like then you can create counters where you're making better decisions against those specific players. So like, I love that as a, you know, as a strategy, just studying the guys that you play against one by one over the course of a week. Um, What would you say is the most high impact action players can take to improve their game?
2: So I think there's two two parts to this. I think one is just understanding how you learn, like I talked about earlier. So figuring out what is your best method for learning because too many people take the approach of, okay, well, I can just watch some poker videos and get better. I can just solve, uh, you know, I can run a bunch of sims and, and study them and get better. That's not, there's not a one size fits all approach to getting better at poker, I don't think. So I think figuring out how you learn And not just how you learn poker, how you learn in life. That's going to translate over how you learn poker. So that's the first step there. And then the other thing is just the away from the table type stuff, you know, the mental game type things, understanding what you do differently when things are going poorly. So for instance, the example that I'll give you is I identified a long time ago that when things would be going poorly for me, if I I was losing a lot of all-ins, I would tend to get all-in more often. I would play uh, ag- more aggressively pre-flop, my four-bet percentage would go up a lot. Hand- spots where I maybe I would flat ace-king to a three-bet, I would be immediately four-betting without even thinking about it. So that's just like a very common thing. Being able to identify that as, you know, my leak when things are going poorly, you know, I can look at that and say, okay, I realize that I'm trying to play more aggressively be- when things are not going well, you know, I end up getting all in in way more spots that are, Probably fine, but not within my normal game plan of how I would attack situations. Like, you know, you're, you're probably not going to be faulted for four-betting ace-king in certain spots, but if you know that's not within the, the best, absolute best play within the game plan of the, of the way the game's going, but you're making that play solely because you've been losing a bunch of all-ins lately, well, now you have a problem. So there's a ton of those things. And the other mindset thing that I always tell people is when they're studying their hands, when they're looking back through their hands that they've played you know, the tendency is for people just to sort by the biggest pot, won or lost. What I tell people is to sort by time. So show, just look at all your hands, go through your hands. And then when you lose a big pot, look at the next five hands. And I guarantee you in those next five hands, you're going to find a small mistake that you make over and over and over and over again. That's easy repeatable. So, you know, people, instead of studying, that hand where they lost 100 big blinds you know with ace king versus queens all in pre-flop and they're like should i've gotten this in pre-flop you know all these things where it's like that's not a big deal instead look at the hand you know the next three hands where you missed opening this hand on the button where you're going to win the blinds a huge percent of the time or you know you call a three bet with this hand when you should be folding it
1: what you mentioned there you know takes awareness right like you need to have awareness of your own strategy, basically, you're profiling yourself. And then you're seeing your own patterns and how you're deviating where like, you know, the spot that you mentioned was like ace king, sometimes you're going to be flatting, sometimes you're going to be for betting. So that decision is kind of on a spectrum. And you're always choosing to for bet, um, just realizing that like, I'm not even considering any other option. And then also realizing like, okay, this means that my emotions are compromised in some way. So like, Basically, it, you know, it kind of boils down to just having that awareness of like what you're thinking, what you're feeling, and, and you're right. Like I, I noticed this; it was kind of funny. It popped up in a coaching session that I did with one of my advanced students, where he played a hand where he was unsure, and he lost it, and he was like, up to that point, I was thinking to myself like this is going to be the easiest coaching session ever because like he's played perfectly the whole time. Like there's no, nothing to, there's no entry points. Um, So he loses that hand. And then all of a sudden for like the next five or 10 minutes, he starts making what he, what he labeled as like brain farts. So like normal standard openings, he would, he was folding them. He was not considering all the options fully. And so it led me to ask him, like, you're thinking about the pocket eights here, right? Like, let's go back to your body in this moment where you're narrating your decision making process, like you're thinking about how you should have played those eights, which is taking you out of the moment, which is reducing the level of play. And so like, you know, that was just an amazing coaching session, because it's like, okay, he's in a feedback, he has a mental feedback loop there. And we get to address that um and come up with a plan that allows him to navigate better in the future and and like it it all boils down to awareness right i think like in the coaching aspect that's one of the major benefits because like he didn't even have awareness of this happening but me watching it brought it to light so it's like a problem he never would have seen himself and like i just think that's one of the major benefits of like one-to-one coaching is i see your coach sees things that you may not see yourself
2: Yeah, I think a lot of people think about tilt and they imagine it as this big angry monster where you know it's just somebody shoving all in pre-flop or stuff like that. But it's usually subtle tilt that is far more dangerous to people's long-term win rates. And it's those hands, just like you said, like you don't you miss an open here, you miss an open there, you make one call here that you wouldn't normally call, and especially when things are going poorly, that's when those uh, things can compound. And it's almost always it's funny because it's almost always pre-flop mistakes that end up compounding into post-flop mistakes for, for a lot of people. And it's, that's funny that that's happened happens because, you know, the most common thing in in message boards and pe- places where people post hands is like, Oh, don't worry about pre-flop situations. You know, it's, who cares about pre-flop let's go to the post-flop. But it, it, a lot, a lot of times it's just a compounding pre-flop mistake due to subtle tilt.
1: And the problem is, so like I run pre-flop bootcamp, right. It's like one of the products that I offer and sell and, Spoiler alert! Like this is not my favorite thing to cover in poker, right? Like it's so like bland, and it's like ugh, pre-flop boot camp, like ugh. But the problem I've realized what you just said there is spot on, and the reason is that you don't get direct feedback on your pre-flop mistakes. Like you can't sort for like you know, opening too wide from like the hijack, right? Like, you know, and then how that affects the game, your decision tree on future streets. Like almost if you say like fold pre to somebody on a message board, they're like, you know, you're the dick, right? (laughs) When like, that's a completely appropriate response.
2: It's funny because I'm the person that plays every hand pre-flop in my poker, my YouTube videos, you know, so, but then, you know, if you watch me play in a typical no limit game, I think I have pretty strong preflop fundamentals. I'm very disciplined in many spots just because you have to be, you know, in the, in the certain game types that you play, obviously. Uh, and I think that's the best way to play. I think understanding, especially in live environments, understanding how to construct preflop ranges and how dynamic you have to be with them, depending on the lineup. That's part of what the play every hand challenge is kind of about because I have to construct my, even though I'm playing 100% of hands, I have to understand how to construct that preflop range. In the best way possible to be profitable based on the way the table is playing so to give you an example that my video that came out today it was from perryville maryland and is a seven-handed table one three game and i have this setup where i have two very older folks to my right who are never going to aggressively enter the pot which is great for me obviously because i have to play every hand so if i have somebody in in front of me who's raising every hand that's gonna be really difficult because i'm putting in a bunch of money whereas the only people raising pre-flop are on my left. It's the the guy to my left, and he's straddling the button a fair amount, so I can just limp. What ended up happening was I had a bunch of hands where I just limp and folded because he was the only one raising pre-flop. Um, and then I also have a, he's playing a lot of pots. The guy to his left is gambling and playing almost probably playing hundred percent hands also. So I, it's not I'm not really incentivized to open any hands at all in this spot, any weak hands at all in this spot. Excuse me, because I'm going to be playing out of position against both these guys. Uh, And not, you know, I'm not going to I'm not trying to build pots up against the players to my right because they're just not playing pots at all as it is anyway. So understanding how I'm going to approach those situations while playing every hand, whereas, you know, there might be other tables where if the roles are reversed here, now I just get to open a ton of hands and I'm going to have to three bet a bunch more rather than flat with these like really trash hands because I have guys on my right who are opening more. So, yep. it, you know, it's just a, a bunch of different dynamics that you wouldn't normally, you know, I think that people can probably gain a lot of it educationally from watching the videos, but I don't give it to them. They have to kind of figure it out on their own. Um, but I think th- there's something to be taken from there, I'm sure.
1: Oh, I, I'm sure there there is. And like you've inspired me to uh, play every hand. I'm going to try to get a sample in at like 100, six max, 100, no limit nice. um, of playing every single hand and just seeing what happens. Uh, If it goes atrociously and I crash and burn totally, uh, just know that that's why these videos never were brought to light because it was just awful. But I think uh, (laughs) I was thinking about it and I was like, man, I want to try that out too because I was just thinking about the strategic adjustments and I've always imagined like each poker table as its own living, breathing organism with the way that it's constructed. You know, you have an ultra... Aggressive player on your right, like that's going to affect strategy. You have an ultra-aggressive player on your left, that's going to affect strategy. A knit leaves and a lag sits down or a lag leaves and a knit joins. Like it's always changing. The dynamics are changing. And so you have to have awareness of like, you know, just the f- how your game is fundamentally constructed so that you can have a solid strategy against these specific players, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. And the other thing is that. It's important to remember that one player can change the whole dynamic too. And that, that one player could be you. So that's what ends up happening a lot with with me. If if I'm doing the play every hand challenge, or especially in meetup game environments, when, when I come to the table, it changes everything because they know that I'm going to be in there playing every single hand. And I, you know, you have, if you're going to be somebody who plays a lot of hands, you have to understand psychology and you have to be able to get into people's heads and recognize how they're going to react to you and what, player types are going to react to you in certain ways. I mean, you have to do that with all poker, obviously it's just, you have to be better at it. If you're going to be playing more hands, obviously.
1: Yeah. It's much more apparent that it's a priority when you're playing a lot of hands. Right. And I think that like, that's the value in really playing a lot of hands and then playing them aggressively is that like people will react differently to you. And because you get yourself in those situations quite frequently you just become naturally better at navigating because like this is your comfort zone. They're they're outside of their comfort zone playing against you and you can really take advantage of that.
2: Yeah. And the other thing is that your image isn't even if you're playing a ton of hands, your image doesn't necessarily have to be bad either. It just it depends on how people how many people are paying attention and you know what they're paying attention to. So sometimes your image is terrible even though you've only shown down winners just because people have that idea. It's just, this person's in there playing every hand. They must be crazy because there's a lot of times that I am playing every hand, but I, I don't make any big bluffs the entire session. So in most of their minds, it's just somebody else who's playing every other hand at the table, which is not anything that they don't see normally.
1: And, and a lot um, of times like players aren't able to discern that, you know, if you're playing aggressively pre-flop and then see betting quite frequently or check raising flops, with a high frequency, they often just label you as like a crazy person and don't realize that like when you make big riverbeds, your bluff frequency is much lower than the perception. And so like they get their, they get their, um, signals crossed and they end up paying off a lot of times when like, you're, you're just never bluffing. Like they just, they just pay off way too frequently because they extrapolate that because you're way looser and more aggressive early in the decision tree you you must be ultra aggressive deeper in the de- decision tree as well without realizing that like uh early in the decision tree is a much smaller investment than being ultra crazy deeper in the in the tree
2: yeah that makes sense the other thing that happens online i think is that often people who don't play large amount of volume online tend to over adjust to opponents so they'll think man, this guy's three betting me every single hand or, yeah. or you know, I, this guy's check raised me everything single spot. But you know, I know from playing in these smaller pools, you have, you can have 40, 50,000 hand stretches against certain opponents where they just have the best hand against you every time, or it just works out that for a month straight, it works out where that opponent is on your left at every single table. And it's not like they chose to be on your left. It's just what happened. Actually in, on one of the main sites that I play on, you don't get to choose seats. It's, it's, it's party poker. So you, you, randomly sat. Mm-hmm. So it could just work out where for a month long, that person's on your left at every single table and they're running hot against you in particular. And they just have it over and over again. That, that can get into your head where it's like, Oh, this guy, Oh man, I, I finally, you know, get to four bet this guy and he's five bet shelves on me. He just knows I have it. And it's like, no, he probably just had it. So, you know, I think having that, that experience of seeing that for, for such a long time and being able to differentiate between this guy has just had good spots over and over again versus this person is clearly coming out for me and what, what that means. That's a that's a hard thing to pick up on, but I think that's a, a valuable educational tool that you can teach yourself or, or learn from experience.
1: Absolutely. Most things in poker are not personal. Most actions are not directed at just check raising the bejesus out of you so that you feel bad. You know, I think that these are stories that, players construct about themselves and about a player that they're playing against. I mean, I've been playing live poker and just had guys explode at the table and they're like, fuck, you're just always raising me. Like, and, and like I have there, I am not consciously raising them. Like they are not even a blip on my radar as to like what I'm trying to do. It just so happened that like uh, I raised them three times in a row for whatever reason, because the situation kind of set itself up um for that to happen but like it wasn't personal i'm not exactly going after a specific opponent and like if you think about it in your own poker career uh for the listener like how often have you just gone after one guy how often have you just said i'm going to raise this person every time they open i'm going to play back at them i'm going to you know i'm going to float them like almost never right uh just you you just don't do it because that's not like it's not good strategy construction it doesn't make logical sense so like when you are telling these stories to yourself, you know, just ask yourself, like, is this actually true? Like, are these emotions even a thing that is telling, that is leading me to any sort of truth in this situation?
2: I mean, that's beauty in poker, right? It's a mental, can be a mental battle, you know, not just with yourself, but with others as well. And also in an emotional battle. Can you, who can, can contain their emotions a little bit better and, have more awareness in what they're doing and and insight into what's happening at the table.
1: Yeah. And I I don't consider it containing emotions. I just, I think of it as having awareness of your emotions and where they're pulling you. Um, Because the people that have the awareness understand, like you understand when you're four betting ace king that your emotions are pulling you in a direction. And so, you know, that's insightful and allows you to take action. When you have no awareness, you're just done. Like you're just your life is being ruled by whatever emotion is pulling you whichever direction. And that's just not a sound way to play poker or live life.
2: Yeah. Well, put. I, w- I was going to say that the carryover to that as a, a parent, think about that as a parent. I, there's so many, this is kind of my area where the the corollaries between poker and being a parent, there's so many carryovers to the way that you have to handle yourself. And that's perfect one right there, you know, being able to the way that you just uh, succinctly put that with your emotions, it's very important in parenting as well.
1: For sure. Um, In my experience, like, I remember specifically blowing up on my girls one time Um, and it was not over, actually it was over something fairly annoying, but I can't remember exactly what it was. But I remember like just getting triggered and reacting in the moment. And like, you know, my youngest daughter, like her lips started quivering and she's like, daddy, don't yell at us. And I just kind of realized in that moment, like, you got to do better, you got to have, you got to be more aware of your emotions so that you don't erupt and, you know, hurt these little girls feelings. Because like these things, even even if they're not intentional, and it's like a relatively small deal to an adult, they don't understand, you know, they don't understand the pressures of adulthood and all the things that are going on. And so like, you know, just understand that that could affect your kid in a very negative way. And that's kind of a wake up call. Like I've got to be more aware of my emotions and not let them manifest. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm still going to get pissed off. Um, it's just being aware that I am pissed off and then not saying uh, what is impulsively about to come out of my mouth.
2: Right. And you're human. So occasionally you're going to slip up just like when you're playing poker, you're never going to play perfect poker, you're going to make mistakes, Yeah, and you just have to learn from it, and you, you move on.
1: Yeah, the lesson is in trying to learn and trying to do better, um, even if you fall short this time.
0: Yeah, before boot camp, I had been playing for maybe 15 years, somewhat seriously, always trying to get better, jumping from learning program to different learning programs and training site to training site. Kind of feeling a little bit lost, not really knowing how to go about getting better. And pre-flop boot camp just felt like a great starting point, a way for me to to move from being a losing player to, to possibly a winning player it felt like the right first step. Once you jumped in boot camp
1: what was your experience
0: like? Well first off I realized that I'd been making a lot of mistakes prior to boot camp kind of learning what rangers should look like and what hands should be played and what situations you know it was it was exciting cuz I I could see what other people had been doing to me what kind of what I had been missing in my game. And then from there, just the whole camaraderie of everybody that's um, signed up, working together, trying to achieve that goal. You know, that that was fun. That's uh, pushing each other and really helping uh, one another. Kind of feeling like you're a part of a team. It was uh, it was a great experience. I, I enjoyed the process and I learned a lot.
1: What was your experience like playing cards post
0: boot camp? It's a totally different experience. You know, it put me in a position to be successful as opposed to always being behind the eight ball and, and playing catch-up, um, I really feel like it's it's the foundation of, of a solid poker game. And uh, since boot camp, I've been able to to turn a profit and keep building on what I learned there. You know, being able to go back into the group and uh, re- really work together, even after boot camp was over, it's it's been awesome.
1: What's your sample size of winning post
0: boot camp? I think I have 70,000 hands played by now. You know, I'm a father and I have a job so I'm not a a professional player by any means that's my sample size
1: Preflop Bootcamp is the flagship Chasing Poker Greatness training program if you'd like to dramatically upgrade your preflop game a new bootcamp launches on the last Saturday of every single month the price is $199 and your link to join is ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp one more time that's chasing the poker slash bootcamp all one word or you can click through in the description box of this episode when you think about joy in your career playing cards what's the first memory that comes to mind
2: this is i think this is an easy one actually for me so Last August, I got invited to play on Poker After Dark. It was a 25-15 in limit cash game, which, and I got invited the week before it was set to film. So it was a last minute, no idea it was going to happen type thing. And so just getting to go there and knowing that I'd be able to play on the show was a big, was, I, I can, just thinking about it makes me happy. But going into it, I knew that I would have a lot of anxiety going into it because you know, i have been on this journey for six years from the time that I had a, a really bad panic attack before, you know, six years before that, where during that time I hadn't played a lot of live poker at all, just because the thought of being in pressure situations like that would get my adrenaline going and then my anxiety would start to ramp up. So the thought of okay, I'm gonna go play on this show on TV that I've never really played on TV at all, and you know, play a high-stakes cash game with, you know, Cantu and Matasao and, and the other people that were gonna be there. Uh, you know, I felt good about my chances of playing, and I just wanted to, <laughs> I just wanted to, I just wanted to be able to go into it and make good decisions and feel good about what I did, and, and not, you know, not necessarily have regrets, but just know that I could calmly make decisions and and feel good about it. And on day one, I made we were playing the seven deuce game, and I made a really big bluff with seven deuce and got Barry Woods to fold uh, top pair, and uh, and that moment is just the pure joy of poker for me because not just the hand like if you if would have called i still would have felt joy honestly because it was more so just that i could execute my strategy on tv and just feel really good about what i wanted to do and i just had such a fun time it was just great to have a bunch of people there rooting me on because i had the youtube channel at this point so i had a lot of you know people that were rooting me on and just following along with the stream and i just had so much fun i really took in the moment and it just was such a great time for me. Uh, And then I got to make videos afterwards about the experience and, and I know that I can always go to YouTube and just plug up that hand and just see it happening. And, uh, and know that it worked too. Like just see that the hand that he actually folded and yeah, it was just pretty great from, for that, from the, from a joy perspective.
1: Yeah, man, that's the best. Um, Especially you're on poker after dark. Like that's, it's a super cool time. It's, I'm sure that's a, super cool experience. And this doesn't help you now, but, uh, after the fact, but I know that, um, my, a friend of mine, Adam Creek mentioned to me too, about anxiety and like when he he was getting ready to perform at like world championships, he would go through this routine and every time he would say, thank you. Thank you for this anxiety. Thank you. Because like, you know, it's energy and it can either, it can either be looked at as a negative a negative type of energy that you're trying to like bury or it can be looked at as like a positive type of energy that is going to allow you to perform at you know a high level and I think that like just perspective on how to treat this energy that that you're receiving can make a, a world of difference in how you process it and then you know how you perform at the poker table are you going to fall apart because you're trying to not have anxiety and you're trying to push it back or are you going to you know, be on your game where you're noticing every little every little move, every little strategy construction, every little betting pattern, because you have this energy that's allowing you to focus um, at a higher level of intensity than you otherwise would. Yeah, those are some great thoughts. For me, when I think about it, when I was playing
2: live poker, when I was dealing with anxiety the most, what would happen is I would make some big bluff on the river or I'd play some big pot where the adrenaline gets going a little bit. And that feeling was just a replica of my panic attacks. Mm. And so in my brain, it would trigger, this is a panic attack it would turn on the fight or flight response. So I'd have to get up from the table, I'd walk around, I would try to do anything to get rid of it in the early goings of my anxiety struggle. So this was talking, you know, seven years ago. So and then I just have to leave because I couldn't I was having a panic attack, because it was just replicated. So what I learned was that I learned that when I had those feelings that they were just feelings. So through meditation, I was able to kind of differentiate, okay, this is just a feeling in my body. You know, I'm I'm obviously going to be breathing heavier or going to get sweaty hands or whatever. And it's not related to triggering that fight or flight response. And then to be able to go on to poker after dark and know that I've, it wasn't even about the poker. It was that this is the study that I've done for the last seven years of my brain so that I can go on this show in a high pressure situation you know, and it, really, if I went on now, honestly, it wouldn't even be that high pressure of a situation anymore because I feel like I've gotten so much training with this. But at the time, it was like this is a high pressure situation. I'm going to go in. I'm going to just do what I think I should do, and. It, If I start to feel these feelings, I know how to deal with them. I know how to compartmentalize them and I can use them for positive just in the same way that you just mentioned.
1: Isn't it amazing how such a thing that you experienced that felt debilitating in the moment and felt just, I'm sure awful, a thing that you did not want to experience that when you felt any form of anxiety, you started labeling it as a potential panic attack about to happen. Isn't it amazing how that can become a catalyst to Growing, learning, understanding your emotions, and you know, coming out the other side, just being a more emotionally well-rounded person—that is, I would assume, um, a better person before the anxiety attack.
2: Absolutely, I I look at my life as the before December thirty first, two thousand thirteen, and after it's it's a totally different perspective on things. It, it's honestly ended up being one of the best things that ever happened to me for me to hit that have that panic attack and then i because i look at it in that multiple ways because it allowed me to work on myself work on my brain spend these last seven years figuring out all these things about mental health and and gaining insight into myself and then also now to be able to help other people with that journey that that's been most amazing thing and that's what i want to do going forward i want to help as many people as possible with the things that i've learned
1: yeah and it that's a noble that's a noble work Um, helping folks that are struggling and who are like in it, right? They're in, you know, Trevor Savage of 2013, December 31st. They are in that state and then helping them come out the other side. You know, I can't can't really imagine you working on a thing that is more fulfilling than that. Absolutely. So the opposite question, and maybe we just covered this, but it's uh, when you think about pain in your career playing cards, what's the first memory that comes to mind?
2: It's funny because... It's the, I know exactly what it is. At the time, I didn't ever think it would be this, but it, it's tournament-related because it's the main event of 2019. It's day five of the tournament. Things are going really well. I hadn't really faced too much adversity throughout the tournament, and I had I had 23 big blinds at this point in the tournament, but it was one of those things where I still, at that point, was just, I'm okay with whatever happens. If I bust now, totally cool with it. And I have Pocket Kings, and I open under the gun one, player to my left, three bets. And I four bet jam for 20, uh, 24 big blinds. I think it was, and he calls with king queen suited and up the flush draw and turned to flush. And it was just one of those things where I just didn't anticipate busting, you know, it's like, you know, in a tournament, you just, you have to be prepared to bust at all times or whatever, but it's just like, it didn't, didn't feel real. And then when it happened, it was just like, wow, you just got punched in the stomach. And not because I wanted to, Obviously I want to win the tournament, but I wasn't upset because, oh man, I could have had life-changing money or I could have won the main event. I just wanted to be in the tournament still. I, I loved being in the experience. It just, I was soaking it up. I did interviews with poker news for mental health things and it was gaining, you know, it was getting more exposure to that stuff that I was really working hard, hard on. And I had all these people rooting me on and my, my kids too. Like they, they like want to see me win a tournament so badly and I want to win one for them. Like, and it, there's, you know, You just say you have all these expectations and all these feelings and no matter how much you say to yourself, okay, I'm going to be fine if I bust and I know I'm going to be fine, but I, I mean, I know for sure that as soon as I, you know, I had this pit in my stomach as I'm just standing at the table waiting for my payout and I finished 255th or something like that. And so it's there and I'm, you know, I'm just kind of breathing through it. I'm trying to CBT my way out of it, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, my way out of it, just breathing and you know it's like okay it's gonna be fine I knew I told myself this would happen at some point in the tournament and then I got to the payout line and I was just sitting in the payout line I just started crying and I was just crying in the payout line for like 10 minutes and they were it wasn't like sobbing it was just like that just like the faint tears it was just like I, I don't I want to be in there still I want to be competing I want to I want to have 50 big blinds in this tournament and and still be alive on day five I mean I want to bag my chips I want to I want to go for all these people, and for my wife, and for the kids, and stuff like that. So that's when I think of the, the the pain, I guess, of it. But then, you know, I I walked outside, and my wife was waiting for me, and my kids, you know, were there, and it's like it's all good. You know, it's it, it was a it was pain, but it was very it was fleeting pain, and I was fine after that.
1: Yeah, and, and it's great that you experience it, right? It's great that you uh, give yourself the latitude to experience that pain cry. And I think that like, that's a more evolved way to get through it than just kind of bottling it, bottling all these emotions in. And then God only knows where they manifest in the future. But like, I've been in not the spot of the main event of day five, but like playing a tournament and you don't expect to not be able to play anymore. And then like, when that happens, you're kind of standing up to leave the table and you're like, I want to keep playing. Like, I I don't, I don't want to stop playing and which is not a thing that you have to worry about in a cash game. Right. Because you just like yell for chips and you get back in, but in a tournament, it's like, damn, like I don't get to play anymore. And that sucks. Um, Yeah. yeah. So what's common poker advice you hear that you completely disagree with?
2: I don't, I'm not really sure on this one because I feel like I'm not in tune with a lot of the common poker advice because I'm not up to speed on a lot of what's going on with that stuff. I think maybe the most the thing that first comes to mind is to not put a lot of stock into posting hands on the internet and asking people for advice anymore. I think that's probably not the best way. I see all these groups on Facebook where people do this and it you know it's it's great to find poker friends through that, but you have to figure out who to trust with that. But especially when you just go from uh you know posting a hand history, first of all, 85% of hand histories that you end up posting there's nothing you can gain out of posting them. And second of all, there's just so much to the dynamics that can't be shown on a hand history. So, you know, I've, I've been a part of poker forums for the longest time and I help people as much as I possibly can when they post hands, but there's only so much you can really gain from that, I think. So That's I guess that's the route that I would go with that. I just I'm just not in tune with a lot of what poker advice is out there nowadays uh, i think people get poker advice from all different places now because you know you have the youtube vlogs where people try to gain knowledge from there and then obviously there's a lot of different training avenues uh to go down
1: yeah and a lot of it's just surface level stuff i mean like play and explain videos is just surface level right it's like you can watch somebody do something but if you don't know why then it doesn't even really matter what you're taking away and you can also cause yourself harm by taking away the wrong things um so like Yeah, poker training. I mean, A, as somebody that is a coach and creates poker training content, it's hard. And it's something that I just spend a ton of time thinking about, like, how do I do this in a way that doesn't cause people to just like fall off cliffs (laughs) by uh, you applying strategies incorrectly? And like, the reality is, it's just really a really hard thing to do. And, you know, the people that are trustworthy that merit your trust, that can give you help in this world, you know, they're hard to come by. A and B, they're not really incentivized to spend a lot of their time and energy in helping you specifically unless, you know, you're paying them financially, right? That like that's that's the only incentive. And So like, it's just really hard to back, back in the day and two plus two, you know, that was fertile soil that was ripe for learning because everybody was trying to learn and nobody was like so far ahead of everybody else that like, it it wasn't helpful for them to post questions and, you know, theoretical questions and give good responses. But like nowadays, man, it's, it's tough. Like it's really, really tough, um, improving in a way where you can, find people to trust and use their feedback to, so that you can move forward.
2: Yeah. The one thing I'll say is if you're going to get some sort of poker coaching or you're going to pay for training sites, you should go into it knowing that you're going to work really, really hard. And there's not, nobody's just going to give you answers. Nobody can just turn you into a good player. You have to turn yourself into a good player. You have to put in the work hours and hours. You know, I can't just all of a sudden you come to me and I'm just going to mold you into a great player now, I think that's what people want. They want, they want to just be given the answers and that's not how it works. You have to yeah. put in hours and hours and hours. And the reason why I can go to the casino and play every hand and not lose all of my money is because I've played, you know, 12 million hands. And I've thought about poker almost every hour of the day for the last 15 years. It just never leaves my brain. So there's a reason why I, you know, I can do that and, or, you know, I've achieved certain results. It's not just, I didn't just get lucky and just came overnight to me, you know? So if you want to get better at poker, put in the time
1: and, and, and run well <laughs> and mostly put in the time running. Well, that'll happen. If you if you're running and you're making good decisions, you know, you're, you're going to get the money at the end of the day, uh, assuming you don't quit poker beforehand, but like you have to do the work, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink like poker coaching poker courses, all of this training material, even if it's top shelf and will be impactful in your poker career. You still have to do the work. Like you, there's no magic bullet um, beyond putting in the work. And like that, that's the disclaimer that I give to all my guys. Is like, you know, we can do these coaching sessions, but I have to see progress. I have to see that you're taking your homework seriously, and you're not just looking for me to like magically make you into a great poker player because that ain't how this this world works in any you know any sense.
2: The best players in the world too they're not fooled by the fact that they're, they do well for stretches. So whether they're doing well or they're doing poorly, they're always working. Most poker players that are maybe even winning players, but not the elite players, you know, they, they study when things aren't going well. And then when things are going well, they just breeze through it. You know, they might, they might not even put as much volume in because they're just, Oh, things are going well. Now all of a sudden they hit a downswing and now they're studying nonstop. They're playing nonstop where obviously it should just be opposite. You should study the whole time. You know, you should just, always be learning. And then when you're doing well, obviously you should be playing as much as possible. You know, if you can take some breaks when things aren't going as well, or, you know, learning, learning when to quit is an important trait to have.
1: For sure. And like, just going back, like we're emotionally driven creatures. And like when we're stuck, that feels more painful and it feels like we need to get to even. And when we're ahead, we think about the pain of potentially losing what we've won And that's a very painful thought. And that causes us to get up and enter sessions shortly. So like, again, it goes back to awareness of your emotions and you know, which way they're pulling you so that you can structure logistically how you approach this game in a superior way. Yeah.
2: I was fortunate to find Tommy Angelo early on in my poker career from just uh, all his teachings. So I really held on strong to those things, learning how to quit And uh, and then just, you know, being aware of of my mental capacity in in certain situations, especially the learning how to quit was always a big one for me.
1: Yeah. Tommy Angelo, he's a legend and uh, multiple time guest on this show and just can't can't love Tommy any more than I do. If you could gift all poker players one book to read, what would it be and why?
2: I really enjoyed uh, Positively Fifth Street, actually. So that that was I actually read that again recently just because it somehow got brought up out of my basement. And so I just grabbed it and I had a few few days to read and I couldn't put it down again. I, it had been a while since I'd read it, but I can't re- recall really reading any other poker books other than that
1: recently. You know, does I, it does have a to lot be them... poker if you have a... Oh, you
2: said any book.
1: Yeah, any book. Okay, any book. Okay, I thought you said poker book. Uh, so any... A book to give poker players.
2: A book to give poker players. Okay, gotcha. Uh, I would uh, say Atomic Habits by James Clear. So I read that earlier this year and it helped me develop a bunch of different routines that have been really beneficial to me. That would be probably the main one that I would give. Um, if I could give any anybody a book, it'd probably be Lost Connections by Johan Hari. Uh, I've spent a lot of time reading that. I've actually read it three or four times over and I actually spend a bunch of time summarizing each chapter for a bunch of people and sending it out to them. Um, just deals with the root causes of anxiety and depression and and what we can do to help people that are suffering from them.
1: Oh man, that, that's a, that's a good call. And I've never heard of that book. So I'll be sure to check that out personally.
2: Yeah. And if you don't want to read the whole thing, just let me know. I'll email you all the summaries (laughs) I did. (laughs) Yeah. They're they're pretty
1: good. You've already done the work with the summaries. Um, if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about poker, what would it be?
2: And I just love poker so much the way it is. I think it's funny. I, I, I I guess I would, I don't know if I could change it, but if I could keep it the same, it would be that I could always play in the environment that I'm currently playing in.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That, that, that's a good use for a magic wand.
2: Yeah. My magic wand would just say, keep things the way they are right now forever. And I'll always, I I know one thing that I've done that I feel really good about is that when it does end for me in, in the situations that I have now, I will look back saying that I know that I took advantage of them to the fullest Whereas when I think about my pre-Black Friday days playing in heads-up cash games, I definitely didn't. You know, I would just, I wouldn't play as much volume as I would. You know, I would just try to make a certain amount and then I'd be done. You know, for the month. You know, if I hit, if I hit a certain total by the twenty-third of the month, it's like okay, that's the end of the month for me then. You know, and it's funny because I see that now with people still. You know, I, a lot of times the last few days of the month, it ends up being the the regulars don't even play at all, whereas it's other people who are trying to get unstuck for the month that are playing. It's like, this is great. I'm, and I'm just always playing. So I know that I'll be able to look back and say, I know that I did everything with this opportunity. So that's great. But I also don't want it to ever end.
1: (laughs) I mean, it's such a funny thing that makes no logical sense. People like taking a week off at the end of the month to like protect their win. It's like every day is its own day. And like, all you've done is cost yourself, you know, 12 weeks of poker playing over the course of the year and so, like, take what you average on a month and multiply by, that by three, and that's what you've taken away from yourself by having that mindset.
2: Yeah, the, the best thing I ever did for my poker results was not look at my results day-to-day. So I check my results at the end of the month. I don't look day-to-day because I would—I was the type where if I was having a good day after four hours, I would just go do something else. And as, as stupid as that seems, you know, it just – I was – I was too emotionally invested in, in my day-to-day performance. So if I was having a good day after four hours and then I went back and I played another two hours and things didn't go well, then I would feel crappy the rest of the day and it would affect the rest of my day. Whereas now I'll just always keep playing as long as I want to keep playing because it doesn't really matter. I don't have to worry about the day-to-day results. I'm such a huge, you know, the people who I I can never be, go back to being one of the people who like checks their hold a manager or poker tracker throughout the session or, or, really holds on to the way that things are going. I block out all my account balances and all that stuff. So how do you just, block them out? They, there's a, in our, in our browsers, there's a, you can click to not see it. Oh, nice. Let's see the balance.
1: Yeah. yeah. That's easy mode right there. I guess, yeah. unless you run out of money. Yeah, you know.
2: yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it comes with the fact that you hopefully have enough in your account that you're not going to ever go bust though.
1: Yeah. And you're in a legally regulated market. Right. So like, you don't have the concerns that us silly people who have no access to such a thing have.
2: Yeah. If I was in, if I was in unregulated markets, I would never do that because I would just be tracking every single transaction to make sure that nobody's stealing money out of my account. Exactly.
1: If you could erect a billboard, every poker player has got to drive past on the way to the casino. What's it say?
2: Have fun. And I think that's just like a, a good omen, not omen. It's a good saying just for life, you know, just enjoy what you're doing if you're if you're going to the casino to play poker do it because you want to go to have fun and not because of anything else and same thing with the rest of your life do things that you enjoy and that you want to get enjoyment out of
1: i agree be intentional about where you're investing your life force and have fun because you know you watch poker on tv like you watch high stakes poker you watch the early poker tournaments like those guys are not miserable they seem like they're having fun. They're enjoying the process. They, they want to be there, right? So, you know, you don't have to be a robot and show up and hate every second of everybody that you interact with. Like, just enjoy the ride because like, if you're gonna spend a, you know thousands of hours doing something, you may as well enjoy it. Absolutely. All right, so we'll close down. What's a project you're working on that's near and dear to your heart?
2: The biggest one is probably uh, the podcast that Jody and I do, which is Raising Nuts Podcast comes out every Wednesday at five AM. Uh, it's just a life podcast. So we just talk about life. We talk about raising kids. We talk about poker. Jody is in nutrition, so she has a bunch of knowledge there. I obviously, like I have said probably many times that I've worked so much on mental health stuff. So we talk about that stuff. But it's just a, a podcast about life. We joke around a lot. Our tagline for season two this year that Jody came up with was it, you know, it's a 45 minutes per week where you come for the laughs and you stay for deep conversations. So we have, we're just silly constantly. We have a good dynamic where we're just making jokes and, you know, we have inside jokes with the people who listen to the podcast uh, regularly. And then we get into deep conversations. We talk about Jody's in therapy right now. She deals with ADHD. We have a daughter who has ADHD and we just talk about all the things that are going on and, and what we're doing to, to fix the situations or try to get better as parents or try to get better as people. And, so that's the biggest uh, passion project that we have going on right now. And we're hoping to kind of continue that and extend it out further as it goes along to, to you know, develop a community of people or to continue to build communities of people and, and help as many people as we possibly can.
1: Awesome, man. Raising the Nuts podcast. And that's how podcasts ought to be. Not all hard teaching, but also entertainment and having fun and you know laughing and all those things as well.
2: Yeah. Cause that's, that's the point is like, that's what life is about, you know? And so we're not trying to shove mental health down people's throats because it's, it's, it becomes very difficult for people to, to digest it that way. You know, you don't want to tune in. If you're dealing with anxiety and depression, you don't want to really tune into a podcast that is just all about anxiety and depression. Right. You know, you want to talk about, you want people who have experienced those things who are sharing their life stories and they're sharing things that they can do to help with those things. But you also want some lightheartedness and you want to be able to just to get an escape, you know, to, to be able to enjoy listening to what you're listening to each week.
1: And you want to know too, that like all things pass, that emotions are transient and that like folks who have struggled with depression or mental health, are able to laugh, right? Like they've experienced these things and they've made it through the other side. And so like that is a hopeful a hopeful thing.
2: Yeah, and, and on top of that, the the bottom line for me is that I want to help as many people as possible. My, Jody does as well. And we are always available. So we make ourselves available. To, if anybody ever wants to chat, if they just want to get something off of the chest. If they want to do it anonymously, you can just email us. It's info at raisingthenuts.com and just email us whatever's on your mind. If you want to chat on Instagram, I'm available there as well. My name is Trey Momey. It's T-R-E-M-O-M-E-Y. My Instagram DMs are always open. And I you know, I write a lot of stuff on mental health, so that ends up getting a lot of feedback. People can usually relate to that stuff. And then they reach out to me. And people can feel free
1: to reach out to me anytime. That's the, that's the bottom line. So if you're listening right now, you're struggling with your mental health, reach out to Trevor And, you know, ask some questions, put yourself out there and, um, take that step because what's the worst that could happen,
2: (laughs) (laughs) right? Like, even if it's not about mental, if you just want to chat, if you just need a friend, if you just want to, for sure, you know, whatever, talk about whatever you want
1: I'm here. I'm ready to chat. Awesome, man. That, that availability is, is amazing. And, um, I exhort some folks that they feel compelled to take that step. And, uh, final question and I'm pretty sure that I've asked these two questions in the last time because either that or I'm experiencing severe deja vu. Maybe. But um, <laughs> where can the Chasing Folk, your greatest audience, find you on the World Wide Web?
2: So this RaisingTheNuts.com is the website that has the links to pretty much everything that Jody and I do or that I do myself. If you go to YouTube, you type in Raising the Nuts. That's the YouTube page. That's where you'll find the vlog with the Play Every Hand Challenge. And then, like we mentioned already, the podcast is Raising the Nuts and uh yeah twitter i'm trey Momi also twitter and instagram t-r-e-m-o-m-e-y we also have raising notes accounts as well for all social media platforms facebook twitter instagram uh, i think that covers all the bases
1: awesome man and this will go on the show page and people can just click through at uh chasingpokergreatness.com trevor savage it's been great having you on these last couple of weeks, um, let's catch up in the next year. See where you're going. If I make a bunch of videos where I'm just getting slaughtered by trying to play every hand and punting off my stacks, you know who to blame. That is Trevor Savage, and you know where to locate him. So send him a DM and let him know that you know he's just created a horrible thing for me. Um, I'm, ba- I'm bad influence on Brad. Yeah. Until next time. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you have yet to subscribe to the show, please take a second to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. For more content from me, Coach Brad, please visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash your edge, and I'll see you next time.